Hey everybody, it's Tim Tialdo. Every year, thousands of women retire from the pageant world and begin their professional journey. But most of them try to make the transition without a solid plan. And then they're left with the post-pageant feeling of frustration, depression, and wondering, well, what do I do now? But it doesn't have to be that way. That's why I created the Life After the Crown Starter Guide. It's filled with seven essential principles to help you make a successful transition to the real world. Everything from figuring out your why and creating a well-thought-out vision to really figuring out what will be the best path for you personally. There's no need to struggle anymore with not having a path or direction. Let me help you through it. To grab your absolutely free copy of the Life After the Crown Starter Guide, just go to timtialdo.com slash starter guide, type in your email, and I'll send it to you right away. Don't put it off. Now is the time to start preparing for life after pageants, and this guide is a logical first step. So what are you waiting for? Go to my site and grab it free right now. Enjoy today's podcast, everybody. Hey, everyone. It's Miss Louisiana USA 2015, Candace Benet, and you're listening to Life After the Crown with Tim Tialdo. Hey everybody, welcome to the Life After the Crown podcast, where each episode I bring you useful interviews with former pageant contestants, title holders, and women of influence who are now succeeding across many different industries in the real world. My name is Tim Tialdo, lifestyle entrepreneur, pageant host, author, and quite honestly, somebody who just wants to help you become a better person overall. Now, if pageant life is over for you, or it soon could be, and you're wondering, well, what do I do now, or what's next? This podcast is designed to help make the transition to real life and the school of hard knocks a little bit easier for you to handle. So if this is your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're with us today. Let's get started. My guest today was Miss New Mexico 2012, Miss Louisiana USA 2015, and placed in the top 10 at Miss USA. And she is one of the few that has competed at both Miss America and Miss USA. She is also a former NFL cheerleader with several dance awards to her name. She is a graduate of Sam Houston State University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in biology and a minor in communications. After moving to New Orleans, she pursued her love for the law and obtained a Juris Doctor degree from Loyola New Orleans College of Law. She currently owns her own law firm in Metairie, Louisiana, where she practices family law, business transactions, and intellectual property law. She is a state ambassador and public speaker for the Louisiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, where she shares her story of survival to educate others on domestic and dating violence awareness and prevention. Candace Benet, so glad we're finally able to get you on the podcast for a conversation, so welcome. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be t- here today. Yeah, it should be fun. So we mentioned that there, you're one of the few who has actually competed in uh, both of the, the big organizations, Miss America, Miss USA, at the national level. Um, this year's Louisiana winner, Lauren Vizza, also joined you in that distinct group. So tell me what it was like. So if you go back and look at both you know, competitions at the national level, what was the difference for you? I was just in two completely different mindsets. Um, when I competed at Miss America versus when I competed at Miss USA. If my memory serves me correctly, I believe I was 23-ish when I went to Miss America. And then I was 26 when I went to Miss USA. And it doesn't seem like a lot of years in between there, but there was just a lot of life growth that happened. And the difference for me was that it wasn't that I prepared differently as much as just mentally 
I was more confident going into Miss USA. I was um, a different person because I had graduated college. I had some career time under my belt, like real life experiences uh, right after winning Miss New Mexico. But then when I went to Miss USA, I had another three years of more life experiences and growth and then even a little bit more education, like starting law school. So I just felt more secure with who I was. So that was the difference for me between actually like my competition state um, going into Miss USA versus Miss America. Now you were uh, part of the Miss USA class uh, in 2015 that unfortunately wasn't able to be on one of the major networks. I know this was disappointing to you due to the controversy. Uh, and the the sale of the Miss Universe organization by Donald Trump. Now, things seem to have really changed with the pageant since your pageant, uh, that national pageant that you competed in in 2015. So what would you like to see happen right now that maybe isn't happening at the national level? I hope that as pageant continues to be a part of the entertainment industry, I hope that it continues to emulate what amazing things women are doing in their communities and what they're doing for their careers. But one thing that I think that we're putting a lot of focus on is that like women are different and that women are strong. And yes, we are all of those things, but I'm a firm believer that you don't have to shout from the rooftops to get across your message and your purpose. And I hope that the Miss Universe organization and the Miss America organization on the national level can continue to highlight the women that are competing and show what wonderful things they are doing for their communities without having to say, oh, you know, we're women, we're so different. Because I think that whenever you continue to proclaim your differences, you're not allowing that quote-unquote glass ceiling to break. So I hope that the Miss Universe organization and the Miss America organization can really take in what it's like to be a woman, but at the same time not have to be like, oh, we're an organization for women. So do you feel like they're taking the, the, the kind of the feminist approach a little too far? I do. I do think that it's gone really far. I feel like when I went to Miss America, it was the first time that they really started to look into the actual individual lives of the contestants and show their stories. And then you saw the Miss Universe organization. Actually, I think they kind of caught on to it the year that I went to Miss USA. And, you know, they highlighted my story about being a victim of domestic violence and how I've overcome that and that I'm an attorney today. And you know, yes, that is definitely my story. And a lot of these girls have gone through a lot of a variety of things. And I'm glad that they are able to show that to the world. But sometimes when you start teetering along the lines of just shoving it down people's throats that yes, we're smart, yes, we're beautiful. And yes, we're women, it can walk that fine line of being like feminist, a feminist group or not. And I think that that can have a negative implication to people who aren't understanding of pageants and then even more so and further to men because you know like men don't necessarily want to eat sleep and breathe feminism and whenever you have an organization that may be portraying that a lot it may turn off more viewers than they're actually thinking well since you've competed in both uh organizations miss america and miss usa um, I know that you, along with everybody else, saw the, the whole bikini decision by the Miss America organization. And now you were, you're big into fitness, and you, uh, I, I know, did very well 
in the swimsuit portions of competitions when you competed, what were your thoughts on their decision to uh, exit from the competition? Well, Tim, you do know me really well, and I was <laughs> very, very disappointed because I think one thing that makes Miss Universe, Miss America, Miss USA such a coveted title and position to have is that these people embody well-rounded individuals. And physical fitness is a huge part of my life because of health issues that people in my family have struggled with. And the way that food is a part of our culture and our everyday, but then so is convenience where people are just making quick decisions, health and fitness should be a part of a competition that is interviewing people who they're looking for to be very well-rounded. So I was extremely disappointed to hear the Miss America program's decision to take away the swimsuit competition. I'm kind of have my fingers crossed and maybe this is somewhat of a conspirator's view <laughs> of it, but I'm thinking that they maybe they're taking it away from this for this year to contour to a different group of people that may want to compete and maybe they'll bring it back in the future but yeah I'm not a fan I think fitness is important I think that it's something that although right now it seems a little trendy there's still a lot of people that just don't know how to eat they just don't know how to exercise and I hope that 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 doesn't get lost um, and I will say with more and more women going into the workforce and, you know, not becoming mothers so quickly, fitness becomes more and more difficult naturally, biologically, and then just with time because you get all wrapped up in work. And so you have to make time in order to be fit or to have that element or component of your life. And I make time and these contestants make time too, which is what has made them so well-rounded. So... Maybe they'll bring it back. Yeah, well, look, you're somebody who's very smart and articulate, and obviously you stay in great shape. So, you know, I guess for the people who tend to, to throw up an argument to what we're saying right now in that, oh, you're just parading women around on stage as pieces of meat, what do you say to them? You know, these women make that choice, right? So at the end of the day, if they want to be on stage parading around thinking that they might be looked at as pieces of meat, which is, you know, a harsh and stark reality that there might be people in the audience that do only look at them for a particular reason, that's just not it, right? Like, that's not why I competed was to parade around in heels in my bikini. I began competing <laughs> in the Miss America program when I was, 14 years old so that I could put my dance on the dance floor one more time before actual dance competition. Pageant didn't matter. Swimsuit didn't matter. Hell, my fitness didn't even matter. All that mattered was that I was putting my dance on the dance floor one more time before competition and I would just have that one extra performance um, in front of a live audience that maybe my competitors at dance competition didn't have. So whenever people are, you know, derogatory or defamatory in the swimsuit context, I'm like, look, you know what, you can have a great fit, beautiful, intelligent person, we just happened to parade around in a swimsuit and we signed up to be judged. <laughs> so <laughs> That's true. It's more of just like a personal choice. And once people like kind of think about it like that, you know, I didn't sign up to play soccer, but some kids want to play soccer. I just signed up to do a pageant and I had a reason for doing it. And 
I had a reason for staying in it, too. Cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that. Now, going back to 2015, you had a unique year, not only because you finished top 10 at Miss USA, uh, but you were the big sis to a uh, Miss Teen USA and Catherine Hike. What was it like to help mentor her through the process since uh, she was kind of, well, I mean, she was the youngest Miss Teen USA ever. Yeah, it was, we had the best year, Tim. Um, Catherine is like still my little sister today. I just went to her high school graduation and get to see her off to college um, at LSU. And our year was great. It was wonderful. We traveled to a variety of different states. Um, I actually flew with her on her very first plane flight (laughs) we flew I can't even remember where we were going um and I mean as most people know Catherine is really really tall she's like 5'11 and I'm really really short I'm like 5'4 ish um but we got on the airplane and you know we were sitting I believe it was yeah we were just sitting like in one of the normal rows and the flight attendant gets word on any any individuals that are minors that are traveling alone. Um, and they asked me if I was the minor and not Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we had a lot of great memories. And she is just as lovely on the inside as she is on the outside. And being her big sister all year was a I couldn't have asked for like the more perfect little sister. And I know I tell people this all the time. Like as soon as we both won and I got to spend just a little bit of time with her, I was like, sorry, rest of the teens, here's your new team USA, you know, and then to actually watch that happen in the Bahamas that year was just, I felt like I won, you know, like, I may have not been Miss USA, but like my little sister won Miss Teen USA, and there was like no better feeling than watching her get crowned. Yeah, well, that's cool, and she did do a great job, and I know you did an awesome job. Uh, she she tells still tells me that to this day, so uh, appreciate you doing that. <laughs> so, in addition to pageants, uh, as we talked about, you were an NFL cheerleader. I believe you spent most of your time with the Houston Texans. Um, talk about what caused you to want to be a, an NFL cheerleader. I was in a relationship and my boyfriend and I were like hanging out on the boat all the time and doing all the things that he wanted to do and I saw tryouts um like a little ad roll around and the girl that worked out with me was like I really just think you should go try out you know just take a weekend away from the boat and I was like okay I'll just (laughs) give it a whirl so I put my block tennis shoes on, put some little rhinestones on my black hot shorts, showed up in a turquoise sports bra and was like, okay, let's learn this dance and let's perform it. Well, there were four or five rounds. Gosh, Tim, this was so 10 years ago. It's amazing. Um, In 2008, there was about 1,500 girls who tried out about four or five rounds on the first day. And I started making rounds and I was texting my mom and like my friends that I was close with, like, um, I just made another round. I just made another round. And at the end of that day, they took 1500 down to 52 or 53 girls. And those were the finalists. And then we had a week or two long of training. Um, and then they narrowed the 52 down to 35. And I found out that I made Texans cheerleader on my 19th birthday, which was draft day. So I was like the youngest person to ever make Texans cheerleader. 
I did it really on a whim because I didn't want to be on the boat with my boyfriend that weekend. And, you know, God works in the most mysterious ways. And he wanted me to do that. And I'm so glad I did because it really put a cap on my dance career. And I, you know, I grew up dancing since I was three years old. And although I never sought like Juilliard or ballet or dance as a profession, it was always still a really big part of my life and a part of my fitness journey as well. So it was cool to wrap it up as an NFL cheerleader. And yeah, like I said, that was so 10 years ago. Well, I tell you, you've <laughs> kind of done all the standard, uh, you know, girly things. You've been an NFL cheerleader. You've you've won pageants at the state level in both organizations. I mean, you're the, the quintessential pageant girl, I, I would call you. <laughs> yeah, I guess some people say that. Um, I tend to like not refer to myself <laughs> as like the pageant girl. But I definitely have had some pretty cool accomplishments along the way. And that's what I tell people, like, life is so short and you can do anything that you want to do if you take the time to actually put the wheels and steps in motion to get there. And sometimes you are denied and sometimes you're denied on multiple occasions. But it's not about how long it takes you to get there. It's about the experiences and the life lessons that you learn getting there. And you never know which path that may lead you to. And it could be something that you didn't expect. Or maybe you do actually attain that achievement. But um, I'm definitely a testament of hard work and making sure that I'm following my dreams. And I hope that I encourage other people to do that as well. Oh, I think you're definitely doing that. Um, I, I do want to ask you because I, I, your reaction to that was, I think, much like everybody else's, is when you hear the words peasant girl, it tends to have a negative stereotype these days. Where do you think it went off the tracks that a pageant girl isn't necessarily the greatest label to have on yourself? Well, for me, it's not even about the label. I think I take it even to like a broader, a broader sense that we are constantly, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like this feminist, feminazi, like movement, I'm so not a fan of because I'm constantly put in the same box, right? Like I'm an attorney, yeah. I'm a female, I'm, you must my, be hardcore. I'm kind of young, <laughs> you know, like I'm about to be 30 years old. Um, but people, when they look at me initially, don't think intelligent. They don't think attorney. They don't think lawyer. They don't think public speaker. And then when they find out what I actually do, they're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> we did not see this coming. So it's kind of the same connotation I take when people say, oh, pageant girl. I'm like, yeah, I did a pageant or two or three or multiple in my day. But, you know, like, I don't let those words define me. And where I think it may have come to this, like, negative connotation is that, A, it's about women, and it's about judging women. And there's this big, you know, cloud over that right now. And then, B, I think it also has a negative connotation because um, of Honey Boo Boo and what, reality TV has done to a sport, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I would liken pageant to a sport. You know, people move their sons across the country to go play football in a different state because it's more advantageous to do that. 
Um, and it's kind of the same with pageant. People move all over. People train all over in order to win a subjective sport. Do you think toddlers and tiaras helped in that reputation as well? Definitely. To be honest, Tim, I've never even seen an episode of <laughs> toddlers and tiaras or like any of that because all I heard, well, I don't watch TV in general unless it's the news, but all I heard was negativity surrounding those type of shows. And I knew what I was involved in, right? I knew that I was deeply involved and rooted with the Miss America program and indebted for the woman I am today to them for being, you know, articulate, for caring about my education, for graduating from college debt-free, to being able to have the communication skills to represent my clients today. You know, and that I took that on and furthered that in the Miss Universe and the Miss USA organization and continued to take away those same skills and fine tuning those skills and learning about people, you know, like I've dealt with, you know, presidents of the United States to people who are on their deathbed. And there's a variety of ways and things that you learn by interacting with different people. And that's what pageant did for me. Mm -hmm. It allowed me to learn how to handle people because that's now what I do every day. Sure. Well, you mentioned the uh, the kind of the ultra feminist feminazi movement. Um, one of the big movements this year, as you well know, is uh, been the whole Me Too movement. Um, and this mm -hmm. one, you know, it's kind of personal to you because, as we mentioned in the intro, you are a domestic violence survivor. So, uh, mm -hmm. I guess a couple of things here. Would you mind for our listening audience uh, kind of talking about your personal experience? What prompted you to share that story? And maybe in the context of this whole thing, how to properly share that story without you know, trying to offend everybody with the way it's done? I'll just read this. This is what I share whenever I do a lot of speaking. Domestic violence does not discriminate. People of any age, gender, race, or socioeconomic status can lay victim to domestic violence. Today, I'm 29 years old, a lawyer, a former NFL cheerleader, and Miss USA contestant. When people look at me, they see confidence, beauty, intelligence, and a responsible woman. But inside, they don't know the demons I carry with me every single day, everywhere I go. It's been 12 years. For 12 years, I've carried around the baggage, the pain, the haunting memories, and I've continued to live with regret. I live with regret that there was a time in my life where I did not have the dignity, the integrity, or the self-worth to know that mental and physical abuse was not okay. My story is no different than any other domestic violence story. I just got lucky. I survived. I was 16 years old when domestic violence walked into my life. I did not see it, nor was I able to identify it. I thought what I was experiencing was normal when two young people are in love. My experience with domestic violence was gradual. It started with mental and verbal abuse and eventually escalated into physical abuse. He began by telling me that no one would ever want me again, that no one would ever love me, that I would not amount to anything in life without him, and that I had no real friends because all of my friends were fake. The constant belittlement wore me down like sandpaper does wood. One evening in 2007, my abuser called me to come get him from a party at 2 a.m. where he had been drinking and taking Xanax bars. Like the kind person I am, I drove 30 minutes into the countryside to pick him up. When I got in my small extended cab truck, we headed down a two-lane road, each lane going in opposite directions. We began to argue about something I can't even remember to date. As I was driving, he raised his fist and punched me in the side of my face, which subsequently made my head hit the driver's side window. The punch knocked me out cold. 
When I regained consciousness, my truck was in the ditch and my abuser had pulled me out of the driver's seat and into his lap where he was holding me. Tears were running down his face and he immediately began saying, I'm sorry. That evening when we made it back to his house, I told his mother what happened. I'm not sure to this day if she even believed me. I never saw her say anything to her son about his actions. Like most victims of domestic violence, I forgave him. I chalked it up to drugs and alcohol and continued dating him. The, the statistics say that women go back to their abusers seven to nine times before walking away. Well, friends, I can tell you I went back way more than nine times before I had the courage to walk away. The last time he laid hands on me was the day I realized that my life was worth more. My abuser was mad at me again for some reason. Again, I cannot remember to date, but this day was different. The anger in his eyes pierced me to the bone. The power he had over me seemed like that of the owner over his dog. He slapped me with an open hand across the face. His hand was perfectly cupped so that it, when it made contact with my cheek and ear, I felt a major pain. I immediately grabbed my ear and laid on the bed. He then jerked me in an upright position, yelling, me, yelling at me that I was fine and to stop being a baby. When I proceeded to cry, it made him even more mad. He balled up a fist and punched me square in the jaw. This time, I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. I couldn't even cry. I was in so much pain. I ran downstairs, grabbed my keys, and headed for my beat-up truck that was never fixed from the first incident. My abuser chased after me, shouting that I could not leave without his permission. He grabbed a knife from the kitchen block as I made my way out the door. I could not scream. I could not talk. I just wanted to leave. I knew this day was not going to end well if I did not get out of there. My abuser chased me outside, holding the knife above his head. Somehow God was watching over me that day. I made it to my truck just in time to lock the door and drove out the driveway. I drove down the road to the local Starbucks and texted a woman I considered to be my big sister. I told her I think I needed to see a doctor, but that I didn't want to call my mom because I was afraid she would be mad at me. She immediately called my mom from there, and it all seemed like a blur. I made it to the hospital, saw the doctor, and my injuries were treated. They had diagnosed me with a ruptured eardrum and a fractured jawbone. I remember very vividly sitting with my legs dangling from the hospital bed. A police officer walked into my room and asked me to recount what happened that day. I tried to tell the truth, but I found myself sugarcoating the story. We did not press charges, which I am regretful for today. We simply asked his family to pay for my hospital bills, which they did. If I can remember what those bills cost, I would share that with you. But I can guarantee you that the amount of money they paid was not worth my life. All the pain I endured throughout the relationship or the baggage I still carry today. Breaking free was not easy. He called me excessively after the last incident. He showed up at my school, grabbed me by the arm, and drugged me from one class to another. Mind you, he wasn't even a student at my high school. He stalked me at my work by breaking into my truck and putting letters, flowers, and teddy bears inside to try and get me back. I used my support system to help break free. The woman that I considered my big sister was my confidant. I had other friends at school who I talked to to lean on for encouragement to stay away from him. I realigned my focus and energy towards a more positive quality of life. I became more involved in my community, teaching dance, and spending more time with friends. I don't think you actually ever break free from the memories, thoughts, and feelings that come along with being a victim of domestic violence, but organizations like the Louisiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence and other domestic violence programs in the states of New Mexico, Texas, and Louisiana gave me a chance to share my story. 
It was not until I began talking to people about what I experienced that I realized I was not alone. Every time I share my story and someone thanked me or shared their story with me that is so similar, it gave me hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Darkness was not my destiny. It gave me hope that even though there was a point in time in my life that I did not possess the self-worth, dignity, or integrity to know that abuse was not okay, it did not mean that I could not change my future. That was when I identified myself as a survivor. I am not defined by my past and neither are any of you. Wow, that's, uh, that's super powerful. That, it's, it's hard to hear, but I, I can see where that definitely changes some lives. Yeah, I think that there's uh, two kind of working parts or two ways that I can relate to Me Too. So first, in the domestic violence realm, and then second, from the female professional uh, perspective of what I deal with in the workplace, um, including the courts <laughs> every single day. So, you know, firstly, when I was 16 years old, I was a victim of domestic violence. Since then, and after recovering and making sure that he wasn't a part of my life anymore, I dedicated the last however many years it's been. I'm now 29, so, you know, almost 13 years to philanthropy pertaining to domestic violence awareness or dating abuse awareness. I've advocated on the Senate floor here in Louisiana for different health bills and Senate bills that help protect victims of domestic violence. I represent victims of domestic violence and divorce and protective orders and also children who may have been in the presence or also victims to domestic violence. And you know, it's a part of me that I'm sensitive to, but that I've also learned that I'm no longer a victim, but I'm a survivor. And I can show other people that your path doesn't define you. And it is about the choices that you make to prepare yourself for the future so that you can have the independence to move forward and get out of the cycle of abuse. You know, Women go back to their abusers seven to nine times before walking away. And I personally can say that it was more than seven to nine times for me before I walked away. And it's not a cycle that I ever want any of my friends or anybody to get involved in, but it happens. And it's also a very silent epidemic. So that's why I take the time to show people and tell people my story because Again, people look at me and they're like, oh, she's perfect. She's fit. She's an attorney. She's been to Miss USA. She's been to Miss America. She's, you know, a former NFL cheerleader. Um, they just think that I have my cake and eat it too. And that's not life. Life is a matter of challenges. It's a matter of failures. It's a matter of getting over obstacles. And that was one of the big obstacles in my life. So I get to now do whatever I can to make sure that teens or anyone doesn't fall into that same cycle of abuse. So that kind of transposes directly over into the Me Too movement because I think that a lot of women get into relationships that they may not even consider abusive. You know, today women can do so many things that they weren't able to do even 30 years ago. And relationships can, in a way, have a tendency to put boundaries on each party's goals. I'm not even saying women or men. The boyfriend in the relationship can be equally subject to this, I think, as well as women. 
but women have a tendency to let their um, goals be maybe derailed or just set aside for family or for their spouse. And that's where I feel like women and myself included can really relate to that Me Too movement because I chose not to allow myself to lay victim to that. And I still pursued my dreams and my goals aside from the pressures and or abuse that I was have had in a variety of relationships, including friendships, but most specifically intimate relationships. And then secondly, as I was saying, and I think this is more in line with what the Me Too movement is, is that I cannot stress every single day I am judged on my look, not on my ability. And I have to show people through performance why I'm enough, why you should hire me as your lawyer. Whereas men almost get that immediately. I have to work 10 times harder to achieve or just to seem equal to what other people I went to law school are. I had the same education. I studied the same book. You know, I have had even more public speaking experience than probably anybody I went to law school with. But people still have doubt merely because I'm attractive and because I'm a female. And that's what the Me Too movement is for me is the constant struggle of having to prove myself and my abilities merely because their superficial um, perception is exactly what people go to first. Now, don't get me wrong, Tim. I definitely use it to my advantage. I definitely slay all day because with that also comes what I like to call, you know, they just don't see me coming. They just don't expect that what is about to come out of my mouth comes out. They don't expect me to be as strong as I am. So it, it has its pros and cons, but it is frustrating. And I'm not the only woman attorney who feels that way. We have to work harder. We have to work smarter. And we always have to prove ourselves in my profession for no other reason other than we're women. Um, and I mean, sexual harassment, gosh, I could go on and on and on about the different comments that have been made to me. <laughs> and honestly, Tim, like, it doesn't even save me anymore. Like, and that's why for me, I prefer to not raise the feminazi flag because I'm not going to give them the benefit of knowing that it would bother me at all. Because it really doesn't. It's a compliment. It's just annoying at this point. Well, I had a very similar conversation um, with, a, I believe you know her, Ebony Williams from Fox News, who is a lawyer from your area. And she wrote a book called yeah. Pretty Powerful. And that, that. Yeah, I've read it. Okay, so you know the bimbo effect is what she talks. She calls it in her book. You know, it was basically what you just explained about going into an environment of men and they look at you and they're like, yeah, whatever. And then you show up and you you beat them or you, you you perform really well and they're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that coming. That's what she referred to as the bimbo effect. So that's really good. I also spoke with uh, former Miss USA Kristen Dalton who uh, was telling me that she's reached out to you for legal advice in the past. So in regards to being a lawyer and a woman, do you feel like it's allowed you to empower other women just by your knowledge and your abilities? Oh, 100%. Like, I can't tell you how many, whether it's pageant contestants or just people who have followed me through my 
years of service to my state or just people who enjoy my social media. I can't express how many different messages I get just thanking me for being me or for being a leader and for taking the good with the bad and for being positive. And I mean, I do have clients all around the country. And, you know, it's funny when people are like, oh, pageant this, pageant that. And I'm like, well, I have a solid two friends in every state, if not more in each state. And I have clients all over the country and I'm 29 years old running my own firm. That didn't just happen on its own. Um, It happened because I took the time to invest in people, to listen to people and engage with people. And when you show people that you care, and Ebony says it really well in her book, that when you couple your appearance with your substance, um, you're a lot more effective in achieving your goals. And I think that the pageant community has definitely embraced me with open arms and I've done a lot of work for a lot of different people. So it's been really rewarding and really cool. And I've only been practicing for eight months. That's very cool. That's very cool. Well, I, I want to go back real quick to you know your advocacy uh, against domestic violence. Now, you explained your story. You talked about some of the things that happened to you physically. Um, I mm-hmm. think where you can really help some girls today is this is a conversation that I have with, I, I think, almost everybody that comes on here, which is the topic of boys or men and boyfriends. Um, and mm-hmm. they're sometimes controlling nature or insecurity and just the abuse that they provide. So it could be verbal. It could be physical, as in your case. It could be emotional or psychological. And a lot of them let that control. The, and I and I see a lot of them at these pageants that I go to, yours included, where it takes mm-hmm. them down. And you can see it on their, you know, just on in their, uh, their body language and everything. You can just totally see that they have been beaten down. What, from your standpoint, as you went through it, are some of the warning signs to keep an eye out for in which you need to say, you know what, it's time to get out of this thing and move on? I mean, I think in the digital era, the first warning sign has to be control over the cell phone or social media posts or social media in general. Um, I constantly see young people checking their significant other's cell phone or checking their significant other's social media profile or, you know, checking their direct messages uh, behind their back, or maybe even they just hand over the phone. Uh, That's an element of control that is really alarming because social media is social media, okay? I think we've gotten really lost in what social media is. And really, for me, it's a digital online profile, and I call it my digital brand. So I always say, you know what, number one, if you're being controlled in any way, from the digital perspective, that is so far reaching, it's gone too far already. I think secondly, taking away from your friends and family or maybe your extracurricular activities that you might have been engaged in that you're either neglecting or maybe you even completely gave up. I think that that's a huge warning sign. I've seen pageant girls, I've seen you know, sports players and myself included. I quit dancing in high school for my high school team of which I grew up loving and wanting to be a part of like since I was a little girl because of the boy that I was with and because dance took up too much of my time and I didn't spend that time with him. So isolating yourself away from your friends and your family and any of the extracurricular activities that you may be engaged in is another really huge warning sign. 
And I think maybe one of the last warning signs um, is just mere respect and what they say to you and what how someone treats you. I mean, you know what you deserve and you know how you should be treated. And if you don't, then, you know, that's soul searching you really need to find. But if there's somebody calling you names, if there's somebody not allowing you to do the things that you want to do, like fulfilling your dreams, and not only like not allowing you, but just not supporting you, people can be very abusive verbally that may lead you to question your own goals or like your own thoughts because of someone else's thoughts, whereas somebody should respect you and love you for who you are and support you in any of your endeavors that you may have. And if you see that somebody's not, then it's a discussion that needs to be had. And if that discussion escalates into anything other than let's figure out how we're going to conquer both of our goals together, then you probably need to question the relationship. So if those warning signs are apparent, and you can really bring uh, good advice in this case because you're a lawyer, a lot of them are scared. They're scared. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I'm scared of this guy. If I try to leave him, I'm afraid of what he's going to do. What, in, in that case, what, what, are, what are the options for them? I think you, each person who feels in fear of anything needs to have a mentor or a confidant that they can confine that sort of fear in. You always have to have someone looking out for you, whether it's your friend or a family member or your parent or, you know, a trainer. Um, and I don't mean just a fitness trainer. Maybe it's a pageant trainer or maybe it's your soccer coach. Just somebody needs to be aware. And that would be my very first biggest piece of advice is to go tell somebody about what's going on. And look, like telling somebody may not do anything immediately, but it at least puts somebody on notice that there are things going on and be like, hey, we just like look out. Um, Ultimately, and this is very difficult for victims of domestic violence, but ultimately nobody can force you to walk away. You know, you can only lead the horse to water. You can't force it to drink. Um, So, and it is a very cyclical cycle people go back and so you personally have to make that choice I think something that helps make that choice no matter how young you are how old you are is finding those people who can help you break that cycle of abuse as you get older you have people who are financially dependent upon that person I think younger generations have a codependency issue where they're afraid to be alone or they're afraid to not have a boyfriend or a significant other because of how it may look um, in their social circles at school or they only want to date specific people for that same reason for the social circle or the notoriety or whatever social pressures that they may be feeling at school. Um, And that's why growing and finding yourself is really important and knowing what you want out of life and paving your own path and not sacrificing too much too soon for somebody else. Well, it's cool that you get to talk about this stuff. And thank you for sharing that advice, by the way. Now, you are a state ambassador in Louisiana for the the Coalition Against Domestic Violence. How did you get involved in that um, in which now statewide, basically, you talk about this stuff? When I was Louisiana, USA in 2015, 
I, oh, I guess I reached out to them before I actually won. Um, so I have lived in Texas. I was born in Texas. I lived in New Mexico and did a lot of domestic violence work there. And when I moved to Louisiana, started working at a law firm while I was applying for law school, you know, I thought another way to get involved with my state was to continue my work in the domestic violence field. So I just reached out to um, the Louisiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence and said, hey, I'm here to help. I've been involved with the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I worked with Head Start in Texas. I can share my story. I like sharing my story because I know that it helps and inspires other people to gather the strength and courage to get their life in line so that they too can walk away and their they're them not be a victim anymore so it all it takes is you reaching out if you want to be a part of something be a part of it so let's talk about your law career because i'm guessing that whole instance had something to do with you wanting to get into law am i correct yeah i think it definitely put a little notch in my belt as to one more reason why i had a, a love and affinity for the law i've always thought that people should be held accountable for their actions and being a victim of domestic violence and knowing that, you know, this kid, his family just bought his way out of it. Um, Again, we didn't press charges. I didn't know enough about the law. I was too scared. My, you know, I didn't want my family to have to get drugged through anything. And now I literally get to help people obtain protective orders. I help people obtain divorces where abuse is an issue on one of the spouses or the children. The other reason I decided to practice law, in addition to my domestic violence story, is that I just have always loved America. And I love the way that our country orchestrates itself or handles itself. (laughs) And I take pride in being an American. And I don't know if you want to say fortunately or unfortunately, the law is the law. And it's the bottom of the line, the bottom of the barrel. And the only people who really know how to navigate those are lawyers. And they write legislation and they push legislation and they bend legislation. So I just wanted to know and I wanted to be able to function on like the worst of the worst or like what what is the bottom line. And the only way that I felt like I could gain that knowledge to really be able to take care of myself and know how the, our country works is to be a lawyer. And that's exactly what law school taught me. It taught me all about what we call Louisiana persons. Um, you know, that's domestic laws from divorces to child custody to spousal support. You know, I know about property and mortgages and sureties and guarantees and all different kinds of practical life knowledge that you can't quite possibly learn everything about. But being an attorney gives you that basic fundamental knowledge to where at least you know where to go in order to obtain what it is that you're looking for. And then I just love helping other people solve their problems. I mean, every single day, someone walks into my office with a very intimate legal issue. I 
like you said earlier, I do domestic work, which is in the family arena. I do transactional work for businesses, and I do a lot of intellectual property. That could be for a person and or a business. So my days are very different, but each person's issue is unique, and each person has a problem. And when anyone's in a lawsuit or even contemplating a lawsuit or is presenting you with some sort of conflict, it's a really big deal to that person. And um, I enjoy being the driver of their train or the conductor of their train. So let me ask you this. If, if there are girls listening who hear your story and they're scared and they want that you know, mentor, big sister to reach out to, and they don't feel like they've got somebody, and they're hearing this and going, Candace sounds like a strong woman. Can they reach out to you? Oh, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I get girls that reach out all the time, and I really enjoy, and even males too, you know, the, the legal journey is scary. Getting into law school is scary. Relationships are scary. Um, there's a lot of things that I feel like people can relate to me and I have no problem talking to someone. Usually when they hit me on the DM and they have a question, whether it's a legal question or a domestic violence kind of issue that they just want to talk out, I encourage them to shoot me an email because I communicate better um, via email at Candice at CandiceBenetLaw.com. So anybody can definitely shoot me an email and I'd be happy to answer any questions, whether it's pertaining to law school or just life or, you know, you have a legal issue you need addressed or maybe you you too are trying to break the cycle of domestic violence and you just need some guidance. And, you know, part of that him it like I said is is that codependency it's that sometimes it's financial sometimes it's emotional um, and really helping somebody prepare themselves and giving them the confidence that they can be independent and take care of themselves is what I enjoy and that's what I get to do every single day well there is a lot of young women out there who compete in pageants um, and, and I read you know I read those bios on that stage every year hundreds of them and attorney mm-hmm. or lawyer is one that pops up quite often. It's probably not far behind, you know, TV hosting or broadcasting. And right. you know, so, you know, being someone who went through the pageant world, now is a lawyer, practicing, has her own firm, what is some advice that you would give to those girls, whether it be the teens who are just thinking about it or those who are actually in school studying it? What's some advice to them on moving forward? Well, so if you're in school right now in undergrad and you are – pursuing your education and you're thinking about going to law school, I don't care what your major is. Don't let anyone else tell you that you should have a different major. Do whatever you want to do in undergrad. I will say if you would like to do patents in undergrad, you should definitely have a a degree in a hard science when you come out of undergrad to go into law school because people who do patent work and our patent attorneys must have a hard science background. So a degree in engineering, biology, chemistry, pharmaceuticals, even computer science they allow. But it is a requirement um, in order to be a patent attorney. If you are in pageants and you are in law school currently, I may try to persuade you not to compete (laughs) while you're in (laughs) law school. Um, So I actually won Miss Louisiana USA during my first year of law school, and it was a very challenging year. Everyone knows that your first year of law school is the most difficult year. Um, It's the most important year for your grades. And 
I would strongly encourage anyone who is in law school to maybe hold off on competing because your education is A, really expensive, and B, very important. Um, but if you do decide to compete, it is possible, and time management is everything. There is 86,400 seconds in every single day, and that is how I was able to manage my time as Miss Louisiana USA and also a first-year law school student. Um, like I said before, we traveled to like 12 or 13 different states throughout that year, and that's not including all the appearances that Catherine and I did in our own state. So it was very busy, but being able to manage your time is essential. And I think that's only going to make you a better attorney for the future because I, I do wear a lot of different hats. I do my own marketing. I do my own accounting. I do return my phone calls. I draft my own pleadings. I do all of my own court appearances. My days are jam-packed and I never stop. But part of the reason that I've been able to be so successful so quickly and that I'm able to wear so many hats is that you know, pageant allowed me, afforded me those skills. They had me wearing every hat as Miss Louisiana USA. I was a full-time student in law school. I was marketing my own self to be Miss USA. So a lot of those same qualities or skills translated right on over to me being my own business owner is really what it is. Owning and running a law firm is, is a business. And it takes a lot of time, it takes diligence, it takes organization, and it takes people skills, all of which you can learn while you're in undergrad or while you're in law school. Okay, well, some awesome advice there, and thanks for sharing all that, because I know a lot of girls, as I mentioned, they do want to be a lawyer or attorney. And again, thank you so much for sharing uh, such a difficult story to share, but I can guarantee you a difference was made today uh, on this podcast. And for those of you who do want to reach out to Candace, I will put a link down in the uh, description below the podcast here. So if you feel like you need to reach out to her, you you can certainly do that. Uh, so Candace, thank you so much. This has been awesome. And I, you know, I always love seeing you and I hope uh, I get to catch you here in Louisiana. Yeah, it'll be fun. I look forward to seeing you, Tim. Thank you so, so much for having me. I just encourage anyone who maybe never wins their state and they are pageant girls for life because you did one pageant in your life. I just hope that you remember all of the wonderful things that you learn from pageant and take away and transpose them into your professional life or into your family life because there's a lot to to learn to be learned from doing a pageant and I know that what you walk away from it is what the value is. We put so much time and effort and energy into the actual competition and we walk away sometimes um, not with the best taste in our mouths and maybe sometimes the best taste in our mouth. But I think ultimately I, I encourage people to really take the pros with the cons and to remember all of the experiences and lessons that you learned through pageant. You're awesome, Candace. Thank you so much. No problem, Tim. Thanks for having me. That is today's episode. Thanks for listening to Life After the Crown. If you like what you just heard, share it with your friends. Tell them to go to lifeafterthecrown.com. And if you'd like to get involved in a network of like-minded women who are making professional connections with current and former pageant contestants, go to LinkedIn and request to join the Life After the Crown pageant networking group. And if you want to keep up with all this going on with Life After the Crown, you can follow me on Instagram at Tim Tialdo, same on Twitter, or follow me on Facebook at Tim Tialdo Fan Page. Until next time, remember the words of Philippians 4.8. 
Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful and not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Have a great week, everybody.